You have probably heard that many employers are struggling to fill available positions. Many possible explanations are put forth, including generous unemployment insurance benefits, children still learning remotely, and lingering fears of infection. But while it is true that there are parts of the U.S. in which finding workers has become challenging, there are other communities in which finding a good job is still not that simple. As indicated by writers Eric Murath and Stephanie Stamm, in certain regions, including less populated areas that impose fewer COVID-19 restrictions like Utah and the Dakotas, the labor market is red hot, with many employers struggling to fill open positions. But in urban areas and tourism hubs, that have been slower to ease restrictions, such as New York and Hawaii, demand for workers has been rebounding more gradually. According to an analysis by job search site ZipRecruiter, the northern Mountain West, which includes states like Montana and Idaho, the Plains, which includes states like Nebraska and Iowa, and northern New England, which includes the likes of Vermont and New Hampshire, are home to about three open positions for every one unemployed worker. These are the places in which labor shortages are presently most severe. For WYPR and my producer Luke Spicknall, I'm Aniban Basu. Over the course of the pandemic, many advanced nations have managed to hold up better economically than their less developed counterparts. This has become even more apparent recently, with vaccination programs proceeding speedily in many developed nations, but scarcely having begun in much of the developing world. But as indicated by the Wall Street Journal, there has been an important economic lifeline for poorer nations, and that has been remittances from abroad. Remittances are the funds that migrant workers send back home. For decades, these payments have offered millions in the developing world critical support, paying for schooling, shelter, and health care for relatives back home. In 2020, global remittances declined 2% from the previous year to $702 billion. That represented less than half the decline recorded during the aftermath of the global financial crisis in 2009. Earlier during the pandemic, the World Bank had estimated that remittances would decline 20% last year. One of the factors at work has been large government support programs in wealthy nations, notably in America and in parts of Europe, which have helped migrant workers maintain some of their financial stability and therefore their capacity to send money to relatives in need back home. For WYPR and my producer Luke Spicknall, I'm Aniban Basu. It was a bit more than a year ago that governors and other policymakers were in a state of utter panic regarding state government finances. Massive deficits were predicted as millions of jobs were lost, resulting in reduced incomes to tax, as corporate profits sputtered, and as retailers struggled. Today, the situation is completely reversed. As indicated by writers Jim Tankersley and Alan Rappaport, from coast to coast, many states now find themselves flush with tax revenues due to a rebounding economy and surging stock market. Lawmakers who had fretted about budget cuts are now busily proposing sizable increases in school spending, direct payments to residents, and even offering up tax cuts. Officials in California anticipate a $15 billion surplus this fiscal year after fearing a $54 billion shortfall. The Commonwealth of Virginia has collected nearly $2 billion in unanticipated revenues. In Oregon, economists recently upgraded that state's revenue forecast, moving it from projected deficits to surplus. In Florida, the revenue forecast for 2021 has been revised upward twice in the past year, and that state is expected to receive nearly $9 billion from the federal government's American Rescue Plan Act signed by President Joe Biden on March 11th. For its part, the state of Maryland will receive a bit less than $4 billion. 
for WYPR and my producer Luke Spicknall. I'm Aniban Basu. Most people don't pay a lot of attention to corporate board announcements. These boards are often packed with wealthy investors who now have an opportunity to accumulate even more money by attending corporate meetings. But recently, there was a major development on a particular board that deservedly attracted much attention. As indicated by the New York Times earlier this year, leaders of ExxonMobil, the vast oil company descended from the Standard Oil Empire, found themselves defending the oil giant against a tiny activist investor calling for a major shakeup in the name of climate change. One might think that an almighty company like Exxon will be able to fend off such a challenge. But late last month, that activist investment firm, Engine Number no. 1, scored a stunning victory, winning at least two seats on Exxon's board through a shareholder vote. This has been deemed a milestone in climate-driven activism. It is one of the biggest upsets in the history of corporate board fights and will undoubtedly encourage other activists to acquire greater power and influence in corporate decision-making. The key to victory apparently lay in the ability of the activists to win the votes of large mutual fund investors who have been pledging to make their portfolios greener. For WYPR and my producer Luke Spicknall, I'm Aniban Basu. America is endeavoring to bring emissions down to net zero by 2050, meaning that by that time, the nation would eliminate as much greenhouse gas as it emits. As indicated by writer Veronica Penny, to achieve that objective, Americans will need to acquire much more of their energy from renewable sources like wind and solar farms. A recent study regarding the subject comes from Princeton University and is simply entitled the Net Zero America Report. The report charts five pathways to net zero, all require that the U.S. exceed the current pace of building for solar panels and wind turbines. But where would all this new renewable energy infrastructure go? Traditionally, the location of high-voltage transmission lines has largely determined where new power is generated. These power lines are very expensive. Does America have the lines to move power from solar farms in the sunny deserts of the Southwest to big cities in other parts of the nation? No, it does not. This is an issue for other parts of the nation as well. In remote parts of Montana and Wyoming, for instance, wind speeds may be ideal for energy projects, but the terrain is too rugged to construct transmission lines to the cities and towns that consume energy. This represents one of many challenges in the march toward net zero. For WYPR and my producer Luke Spicknall, I'm Aniban Basu.